All right, guys, welcome back to Lesson 103. Here we are, Deuteronomy 21 through 22. Yesterday, we talked about fighting. We talked about the manuals for war, and then who doesn't go to war? Kevin, do you remember the four? Four people that, that don't have to go to war that first year? Uh, if you just built a house, if you just got married, if you just planted a vineyard, and if you're just plain chicken. If you're just plain chicken. So these are the manuals for war, and who leads the charge in the battle? The priest. The priest. The priest is the one reminding, I love what Drew said, he's, he's the one reminding everybody, this is God's battle, not ours. And so in the general reminders, he might be blowing trumpets, he might be speaking to them, but either way, he's amidst the battle. He's right there on the forefront, and he's saying, guys, this is how we're going to engage. Now, it doesn't come until numbers that the armies are formed, but it's cool that once they're formed, they already have the game plan. Don't you love that? It's like when you come up with a vision. You come up with a, a, a mission statement. You want to have it written down first so that people can actually, scripture says, so that they can run with what's written down. You want the army to run with the game plan. And I I think it's an incredible picture. So now as you're entering into the new land, let's just say the armies have cleared the land. Remember, this is the promised land that we're looking, plans of Moab, they're staring at this. Now, when you walk into, into land, okay, what happens? Now, I love this. This is so practical in Deuteronomy 21, verse one. What happens if you come across the dead body? Who's responsible? Was this person killed in in, an army, in a war? Was this person just killed? How do you deal with unresolved murder? And so what I have here written already is unresolved murder, verses 1 through 9. And what I like about this is that it gives us practical steps on how to deal with the sin that has actually, as as Warren Wiersbe says, defiled the land. Because if there's blood on the land, somebody's got to atone for this. So in verse 1, just so we know, if a murder victim is found lying in a field in the land, the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And it is not known who killed him. Watch this. Then your elders in verse two and judges, they must come out and measure the distance from the victim to the nearby cities. Kevin, why, why is this so important that the elders and judges had to determine the distance of these cities? Well, whose jurisdiction, who's responsible for atoning for it? Yeah, like if there's a murder, is it in Plano or is it in Richardson? If there's a murder on Coit, this is an interesting, a road, you know, is it Dallas police that take care of it or is it Richardson police that take care of it, right? And so you have to have these lines and understand who is going to actually take care of this because uh, everybody, to me, this is incredible. Somebody has to deal with this dead body. I'm not doing it. You do it. No, let's, let's actually walk through this process because an unresolved murder, I believe, can actually bring forth serious issues for that land. Let's give a couple scenarios of Cain. Remember Cain killing Abel? If you would, Kevin, can you go to Genesis 4, 10 through 12? Genesis 4, 10 through 12. Then the, uh, verse 10, it says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, think about this. Go back to verse 10, if you would, Kevin. Think about this. A dead body's blood, Scripture says, is crying out from the ground. So, like, there is something that needs to be dealt with in verse 11 It says, so now you are cursed, the land, alienated from the ground that opens his mouth to receive your brother's brother's blood you have shed. Verse 12, if you work the land, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. This is a major problem. If there is unresolved blood on the land, look what happened in Genesis 4. Scripture says that it will never give you what you need it from. The fruit won't happen. So we have to resolve this issue. Hebrews 12, verse 24. Hebrews 12, 24, and they're learning from the Cain and Abel scenario. Hebrews 12, 24 says, now watch, 
to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant and the into the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. So we need, okay, I'm just going to go there really big picture for a second. We need somebody, we need the blood that's going to atone for the blood of Abel. Okay, does that make sense? We need something that's going to atone for the sinfulness that took place on that land. Sounds simple, but we need to address this because scripture says God is keeping track of all that's taking place. Kevin, can you go to Genesis 9, verse 5? Genesis 9, verse 5 says, I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood. I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man in his image. Now, if you don't understand who shed this person's blood, what the scripture says, we've got to find atonement for that blood on this land or it will not yield fruit. Psalm 9, verse 12. If we, if we can, let's go there. Psalm 9, verse 12. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So God is remembering all the bloodshed and something still has to be taken care of. I'm just kind of like, wow, I didn't know any of that was in there. <laughs> when you read through this, so it's really important that we see atonement. Isaiah 26, verse 21. Isaiah 26, verse 21. Again, let's just kind of wrap this thing up here. For look, the Lord is coming from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will reveal the bloodshed on it and will no longer conceal her slain. So the elders in verse two of Deuteronomy 21, they got to come out and they got to figure out who's going to deal with this issue because otherwise we've got a serious problem on our hands. You can no longer just bury the body and just say, oh, well, nobody knows. No, we got we to take care of this. So in verse three, it says the elders of the city uh, nearest to the victim. So they determine, right? They determine who it is. They determine if it's Richardson or Plano. They determine the location. And here's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to get a young cow that has not been yoked or used for work. And the elders of that city will bring the cow down to a continually flowing stream to a place not uh, tilled or sown, and they will break its neck there by the stream. So this, I'm just going to say it, this poor cow, this heifer, did nothing on behalf of this murder, right? But this is the situation, okay? It is serving as a punishment, this is a fair statement, on behalf of the unresolved murder. Then it says in verse 5, the priests, the sons of Levi, they'll come forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and pronounce blessings in the Lord's name and they are to give a ruling in every dispute in case of assault. Can I just say this? They are after the blessings of this land, not the curse. If they don't take care of the atonement, they will never receive the blessings on that land. So then it says in verse 6, all the elders of the city nearest to the victim will then wash their hands by the stream over the young cow whose neck has been broken. Now, I think this is interesting to me, okay? Uh, there's a mentality of a cleansing that is now taking place, okay? As, as, one, as Warren Wiersbe says, they are removing the impurity that would rest on the community. It would rest on the land and they needed to atone for their guilt by breaking the neck and offering this cow. Man, that's pretty forward. But at the same time, they're washing and they're cleansing their hands. If they don't, this is crazy. Kevin, can you go to Leviticus 18, verse 24? 
once the land was defiled, the Canaanites defiled it. It was so bad that when a land is defiled, uh, let's keep going through here, Kevin, to verse 25. Yeah, look, once the land has been defiled, look what happens. It says, so I'm punishing it for its sin and the land will vomit out its inhabitants. If they stay in this posture of sin, I feel like what the Lord is saying is, oh, by the way, I just want to vomit you out. If you're not going to take care of this unresolved issue, I don't, there, there's no blessing on this land. And so we got to wash ourselves. The elders wash their hands by the stream because the neck has been broken. And they will declare in verse seven, our hands did not shed this blood. Our eyes did not see it. And then the, they say, Lord, forgive your people, Israel, you redeemed and do not hold the shedding of innocent blood against them. Then they will be absolved of responsibility for bloodshed. You know, in the New Testament, when I when I think through this process, I think always sin always, always requires death. Go to Romans 6, 23. We know this passage, you guys. We know this passage. Sin requires death for the wages of sin. When we sin, it leads to death. Okay, go to Romans 5, 12, if you would, Kevin. Romans 5, 12 talks again about that there's this death component. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, right? In this way, death spread to all men because all sin. Sin leads to death. But now watch this. Go to Hebrews 9, verse 13. Hebrews 9, 13. For if the blood of goats and the bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So you had to have, as strange as this sounds, sin leads to death, but then there needed to be a death, there needed to be a bloodshed to remove the guilt. Here's what you have in, in, a, in a cow. A cow is the one that actually takes care of and atones for that land's unresolved murder and bloodshed. You guys, this is what, this is what, this is what Jesus did for us. Jesus did this exact same thing for us. He died for our sins. I know you're like, well, that's obvious, but I can't miss this point. Jesus died for our sins. Kevin, can you go to John 1 verse 29? I love how Wearsby spells this out. John 1 29, this is the role of the lamb. He's the one, keep going, thank you, the next day, John saw Jesus coming. He's the Lamb of God. Remember, he takes away the sin of the world. 1 John 4.14. 1 John 4.14, again, reiterates what this cow did for the unresolved murder. 1 John 4.14 says, We have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as a world Savior. This is because the Father sends his Son to take away our sin. But now here's what's crazy. He dies for our sins, but he also died for the church. Okay, I'm doing a bigger picture here. Go to Ephesians 5, verse 25. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her, in verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. So here's this incredible image about how Jesus dies for our sins, but he also dies for the church. Why? So that there can be a cleansing that takes place. And then one more thing. I think this is cool. Jesus died for our sins. He died for the church. And you ready for this? He died for Israel. Isaiah 53 verse 8. That, that cow didn't deserve it, nor did Jesus. Jesus says, it says he, the prophet Isaiah was talking about a coming prophet. He was taken away because of oppression. 
and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. All of Isaiah 53, crazy enough, points to the Messiah dying for his people. Lord, and verse says in verse 8, forgive your people, Israel. You redeemed and do not hold the shedding of innocent blood against them. I'm going to walk you through just a little bit more here. Kevin, if you would, can you go to Matthew 27, verse 24? Matthew 27, verse 24, kind of has this same image. Now, you remember the, remember the elders? Remember how they're washing their hands? And they, they're asking for this cleansing, and they say, this isn't our blood, right? Look what Pilate says. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, interacting with Jesus in the crowd, that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. In other words, he doesn't own up. Isn't that right? He doesn't own up to it in verse 25. He says this, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. It's crazy. And look what Jesus says in response. Luke 23, verse 24. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And it closes out and they divided his clothes and cast lots. And so Jesus clearly says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it makes me feel like I'm reading verse eight. Lord, forgive your people you redeemed. And then in verse nine, so Jesus is making this comparison in verse nine of Deuteronomy 21. You must purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood for you will be doing what is right in the Lord's sight. Look, let's just call it out as it is. The only way that we can now shed ourselves of this uh, sin that we've done <laughs> is we have to turn to Christ and the blood that was shed for us. And in Deuteronomy 21, the only way they could shed themselves of this iniquity and sins and transgressions is that they had to take an innocent heifer, the innocent cow, break its neck. And then they asked for forgiveness in this process. And so to me, we have to understand, we have to receive this gift. It's a gift that only Christ can give. So here you have unreserved, unresolved murder as one of our points. But then we're going to get into talking about wives. Okay, so now when you go to war, it says in verse 10, okay, we're going to cover verses 10 through 14. It says, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God has hands them over to you and you take some of them prisoner. If you see a beautiful woman among the captives, desire her and want to take her as your wife. So you have... Basically, an enemy's uh, woman, right? An, an enemy's wife, maybe beautiful woman that you see. You, you can take her, but now watch what it says in verse 12. You are to bring her into your house, but here's what she needs to do. She has to shave her head and trim her nails. And you're like, wow, this is really interesting. And then here's what she's supposed to do. Remove the clothes she's wearing when she was taken prisoner. Live in your house and mourn for her, mourn for her father and mother a full month. So for 30 days... This captive, this beautiful woman, she's supposed to come into your house, shave her head, trim her nails. And the reason they do 30 days is that would probably be the time of her mourning. She can mourn because she's lost her family. She's in a complete different environment. She's supposed to get rid of all of her clothes that would uh, um, tie her to false worship, tie her to false uh, idolatry, right? All of these different things. And then it says after that, after one month, after she's cleaned herself up, you may have sexual relations with her and be her husband and she will be your wife. I do like this imagery of new clothing. I just think there's something out with the old and literally in with the new. You're putting on 
Now I'm going to go to the extreme, the clothes of righteousness. You're putting on the clothes, these garments that represent God. And oh, by the way, it's a ritual even that the cleansed lepers had to go through. Remember, they had to go through this process. They had to go through this of getting rid of things, taking baths, cleansing themselves. They're removing themselves of these sins. It's an incredible picture of beautiful women letting go of themselves in order to embrace more. Now, it says this in verse 14, but then if you're not satisfied with her, you're to let her go where she wants, but you must not sell her for money or treat her as merchandise because you've humiliated her. If, okay, so does that make sense? And so there, there's a divorce that can happen, that can actually take place. And strangely enough, it's passing on when I would say Jesus even says there's a hardness of heart. Ah, I'm just, I'm done with her. <laughs> like to me, that's what's so, so strange uh, about, about what we see here in divorce. I think so many people do that, you guys. Just like if you're not satisfied with her, you're, you're done. There's a lot here, but I don't really want to focus on the whole issue of divorce. We're going to get into that a whole lot more uh, coming up. But I do want to just say, if you're not, you can actually say you're done, but you just can't sell her. Now, here's where we go into unresolved murder. We get into the wives component. And now we're going to get into 15, where we're going to talk about the father and sons. You guys want to comment on anything else up until this point? So in verse 15, it says this, if a man has two wives... One loved and the other unloved. Oh boy. And both the loved and the unloved, they both have sons. They bear him sons. First of all, that in itself is already a problem. And if the unloved wife has the firstborn son, does this sound like something we already know? Uh, Leah and Rachel. Yeah, I think so, right? When that man gives what he has to his sons as an inheritance, he's not to show favoritism to the son of the loved one Loved wife as his firstborn over the firstborn of the unloved wife. In other words, hello, 12 tribes of Israel, (laughs) right? I mean, no, I don't want to have a son through you, Leah. I want to have a son through you, Rachel, or Bilka, right? Or whatever the other, uh, is it Zilpah? Bilka and Zilpah, I think. Like, I don't, you can't show favoritism. Crazy enough, right? The firstborn, we know that through Leah, uh, it was Simeon. And then it went into Levi, and then it went to, no, it's Reuben and Simeon. And then it went to Levi. And then, crazy enough, the woman that he didn't really love comes the tribe of Judah. So don't show favoritism of the one preferred love wife over the unloved wife, because God actually might have a plan. Now, this is still weird. I'm just going to tell you, I don't believe today that God would promote polygamy. I don't think he'd say, hey, go have Multiple wives, so I'm just going to tell you, I don't get this verse. You guys have any thoughts on this one? I think it's a reality of what's happened. I mean, their heritage, I mean, we went directly to it, the 12 tribes, and what it's, he's like, it messes things up. They saw what it did to Joseph, and when Jacob loved Joseph better than the others, and a whole lot of favoritism and he used to saying please keep your focus on the firstborn i want to have a double portion i want to pour out my blessings and then reuben he even decided what you're saying kevin he decided to give it up joseph then embraced it there's just a lot there again what you're going to see in this context of of this chapter is different scenarios on how to deal with things okay 
So it's kind of like how to deal culturally as you go into the land. As you go into the land, what do you do with a dead body? As you go into the land, hey, if you have two wives, how do you deal with all that? If you go into the land and then you decide to have multiple wives and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, I've got multiple kids. He says, hey, don't, don't show favoritism and do it one way or the other. So again, he's giving us, and I like this image, he's giving us guardrails that we have the freedom to walk on the land, but he says, please stay within these parameters. That's what these are. These are parameters and guidelines. And then the last thing that I really want to focus on, I, to me, have you ever had when you read things, you're like, oh, I never knew that before. That's what happened to me in this section. I want to write about and talk about the problem child. Okay, you have unresolved murder wives, fathers and sons. But what do you do with kids that just don't listen? <laughs> if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, I'm in verse 18, who does not obey his father or mother, and he doesn't listen to them even after they discipline them. So even after you spank them, even after you, you speak to them and sit down with them, and they're not obeying, look what happens. In verse 19, his father and mother must take hold of him and bring him to the elders of his city, right? Because the elders were always sitting at the city gate, to the gate of his hometown. In verse 20, they will then say to the elders of his city. You know, this shows a ton of humility. You know that, right? The parents that come to the gate and say, you know what? We just can't parent this kid anymore. You know what? We have a juvenile delinquent on our hands. That's what they have to say. We, we can't do this anymore. This son, scripture says, is our stubborn. He's stubborn and he's rebellious. He doesn't obey us. And then look what they call him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Like they do not hold back. What I love about Nelson say, we have a good for nothing son. You deal with him. That's really what happens at the city gate. In verse 21, they knew that when they did this, this is what's going to happen. Like, this is why you have to wonder about the parents. Had they hit their end? And in verse 21, it says, Then all the men of his city, of this city, will stone him to death. The juvenile delinquent, the good-for-nothing son, the son that's a glutton and a drunkard, the son that won't listen, he won't obey to his parents. Remember, remember what's important, one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and your father. This son has no desire. So then the elders are supposed to stone him to death. And then you must purge the evil from you. And all of Israel, wow, will hear and be afraid. Now, look, let's just kind of say something really crazy. Like they needed to kill their son so that this wouldn't happen again. And I'm not talking about the son. I'm talking about all of Israel. Like if there's going to be a rebellious son, I want all rebellious sons to understand you cannot do this any longer. Like we want to cut it off at the head. It's like when we go back to, man, these people, I hate to be the first example. And that's what is happening. When a sin of a person, it, it actually can impact, as Wearsby says, a whole nation. Achan, remember Achan's deal? He's dealing with sin. We got to cut it off because we don't want this to think that this is normal. Now, I want to go to something. I've never heard this, you guys, before. And I was reading through multiple commentaries, so this is totally not from me. But I want to go to the prodigal son story. You know, I just want to just walk you through this. You know the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son, what does he do? He says, hey, I want all my inheritance. He takes off. He ends up eating pig slop. And then what happens? He realizes he's hit rock bottom. He's a rebellious son that leaps, okay? I think this could be a great image, don't you think? of a son who's rebellious, not listening, he's not being obedient, and he's off. Well, I want to go to you guys for a second. What happens when he comes back into town? Do you guys remember how the father responds? He's excited to see him. He's excited to see him, and then what does he do? He goes out and he embraces him, right? 
He goes out, embraces the prodigal son. Can I just say for this context, the rebellious son who probably in this context should have been stoned. What I saw, and again, I can't prove this, is that imagine if the father went all the way out to embrace the son. As he embraces the son into the city, if he's holding the son, if he's hugging the son, the elders aren't throwing stones at the son to kill. Just a simple thought, something that has really radically rocked me actually in the last couple of days is that the father is holding us in his arms so that they can't throw the stones at us. So that we don't get the death that we actually deserve. This son totally deserved to die, but the father embraced him, I believe, in order possibly to prevent the purging of evil and possibly even the death on his own son. I I can't prove that. I just think it's a really cool picture that if Jesus is using this picture, people back then would have known about rebellious son. And at this point, they wanted they wanted the problem child to be so much of a prominent um, uh, learning lesson that it says in verse 22. Look at this. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. Okay, you're stoning the kid to death. And now what? It says, if anybody is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed. So once he's dead, once he's been stoned, guess what you do? You hang the kid's body on a tree. And then in verse 23, it says, you're to leave his corpse. You're not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but you're to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. And so all of Israel, I want you to understand, if you live in a rebellious state, we're going to stone you. And oh, by the way, we're going to kill you. and We're going to let you hang for a day so that this doesn't spread any longer. They want to instill fear in the Israelites. Because if you get to this point, you are brought upon and you will experience a God's curse and not his blessing. You must not defile the land your God is giving you as an inheritance. Wow. There's a whole lot here. And I'm just going to tell you now, only one person took that place for us. Only one person, when we deserve the stones, when we deserve the killing, Jesus said, you know what? I will take on that curse. I will take on the death that you deserve and I will hang on a tree myself. In fact, Kevin, can you go to Galatians 3, verse 13? Galatians 3, verse 13 proves this fact that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Jesus takes on, you ready for this? The cursing so that we can embrace the blessing. He takes on the cursing that was what? Coming from, look at this, because it's written of the curse of the law. We can't keep up with this. And Jesus says, I'll take this. And then in Acts 5, verse 30, Acts 5, verse 30, it continues just to to prove over and over again. Galatians, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. Jesus took the curse. 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24 again has this mentality that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took the rebellious spirit. He took, honestly, the disobedient spirit. He took all of that. He took the curse. He put it on himself, his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. You have been healed by his wounds. Jesus heals us. How? By taking on the curse and putting his body on the tree. 
And this all comes from this imagery of a problem child being stoned. And then he says, I am a curse on this land. Like this is the mentality. And Jesus says, I got it now. You know, when you get into Deuteronomy 22, just so you know, they're talking about, you know, what do you do with finding a stray animal? How do you take care of your brothers and your neighbors? Strangely enough, I just got to say this. Uh, in verses 5 through 12, it talks about men, make sure you're wearing men clothing and women, make sure you're wearing women clothing. Like he gets into all of these details. When it all said and done, you got to look to the Messiah. He's the only way we can keep up with this whole thing. All right, guys, bless you. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks.